And good morning and welcome to those who are joining us online as well. It's good to be together on this sunny February morning. And we're going to be starting a a new series today. But before I get into what that is, I just want to uh, share a story with you. Um, this is not a good start. <clears throat> Mohandas Gandhi is a name that uh, is probably familiar to most of you in this room. Um, a fairly well-known, famous person in, in recent, more contemporary history. Uh, was alive in the latter part of the 18th and into the uh, or actually 19th into the 20th century, influential figure in South, both in South Africa and in his native India. He led um, many civil disobedience uh, movements, nonviolent protests for social and political change, uh, particularly to try and bring about an end to uh, the colonialization uh, by Britain of India. He was influential in people like Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, uh, which led to some of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s own strategies in the American civil rights movement. And you may know some quotes, whether you realize they're attributed to Gandhi or not. Uh, He has many famous quotes. I remember when I was in college as an art major doing a painting that was, I was trying to embody one of those quotes where he said, be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, It's, you know, all truth is God's truth. And I think that's one of those that uh, is just a powerful reminder that we're not just to be here, but doers of the word, at least from a Christian worldview. That's how I see that. Um, He was a devout Hindu, so he was not a Christian to be clear, Uh, but he was interested in other religions. Uh, He read the Bible. And he was particularly intrigued by uh, uh, Jesus' sermon in the the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, He also had some experiences with Christians and with Christianity that were not so good, which apparently led to this well-known quote, which you may have heard from him or attributed to him before, in which he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are just so unlike your Christ. You know, I've, I've, I've long heard that. I did a little bit of digging to see what, what, what led to that. What led to him saying that? And in a newspaper article uh, in the Kansas City Star in 2016, um, this story was told as the background to that quote. said, one Sunday morning, Gandhi decided that he would visit one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. Upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped at the door by the ushers. He was told that he was not welcome, nor would he be permitted to attend this particular church, as it was for high-caste Indians and whites only. He was neither high-caste, nor was he white. And because of this rejection, he turned his back on Christianity. With this act, Gandhi also rejected the Christian faith, never again to consider the claims of Christ. He was turned off by the sin of segregation that was practiced by the church. It was due to this experience that he said what he said about Christians. Now, I don't know exactly what went on in Gandhi's heart, and he's still accountable before the Lord uh, for his choice in terms of what he did with Jesus at the end of the day. But Christians play no small role in this world in exemplifying Christ to the world. And so there is a part to play that the church had as well in his own spiritual journey. And so this series is called Evangelism Like Jesus, 
Because what we're going to do is take a look at how Jesus spread the good news of the gospel to a world that is lost because of sin, where he both called people to live a radically righteous life, but he also extended grace where it wasn't deserved. Ultimately, of course, through giving his own life for us. Why this series? few reasons why we chose to do this series. One, it's timely in a country that is so polarized, and I know that I've said that a lot and you've heard others say it a lot. It's just true relatively to the short history of our country, probably more polarized now in its beliefs than ever before. But it's not just people's beliefs and worldviews that are so different. It's also the attitude that those have toward one another who believe differently. And what that does is it presents an opportunity for God's people, the church, to exemplify what it means to passionately believe and hold strongly to some truth while also viewing and treating others who differ with the same compassion that Jesus held for the lost. So it's timely in that sense. It's also timeless. This would be the second reason. Because there's the call upon Christians from day one uh, of Jesus' incarnation and coming into this world and calling disciples to follow after him. There's the call upon us to be on mission as well. To be saved by Jesus is not only for us to be saved from our sin and to a relationship with God, but it's also be saved for the ministry of reconciliation. To bring the same message to the world that you and I, if you're a Christian here today, are beneficiaries of. This is made clear, this calling that is, in places like John 17, 18, Jesus' high priestly prayer in which he's praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples, and in a sense for you and for me here this morning, he said, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And sent them to do what? Well, he tells us in Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission passage, go therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So we're doing this series because it's timely, it's timeless, and also because evangelism happens not only through the message of the gospel, but also through the messengers of the gospel. And sometimes we focus more on the former than we do the latter. Mission isn't just about what the gospel is, getting our theology right. It's easy to think that if we have our theology down, then we can do no wrong. Of course, that's the way that the Pharisees thought as well. They had right theology and that that was enough. But mission is also about the how. It's not just the message we share, but it's how we embody that message in our interactions with others. In other words, what is being communicated in your relationships uh, to anyone, but especially to those who don't yet know Jesus, with your presence, with your tone, with your body language, with your tears, with your lack of tears, with your time, with your patience, and so forth and so on. Now, we know also that the gospel will not always be well-received, Just by virtue of being a Christian and truly following after Christ, we have the promise from him that many will hate you as a result of following after him. Such as in John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the gospel is going to be offensive to some But one thing that I have fear and trepidation over personally, I, Daniel Williams, is that I don't want to be personally the reason and source for a person's offense to the gospel and to Jesus. 
If I offend people, I pray it would be because of the truth of Christ that repulses them, like that aroma and fragrance unto death for the perishing, as the scriptures say, and not where my actions personally are a departure from the character and person of Christ. Now, here's the reality. You and I are not Jesus, and we're not always going to get it right. Mission and evangelism. And God would not want us, I don't believe, to live in perpetual fear, or else we would never risk sharing our faith to begin with. But we always need to be growing as missionaries in likeness with Christ and how he went about bringing the gospel to this world. And the way that we do that is twofold, or at least the way that we'll be approaching it in this series. Number one, by beholding the beauty of Jesus— And number two, by following the example of Jesus. And we just talk about each of those briefly. It all starts with beholding the person and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. My prayer for myself and for you is that as we behold how Jesus in this series goes about on mission to the lost, your and my heart would be humbled and awed and just marvel at him and fall more in love with Jesus. There are a variety of reactions that people had to Jesus then and will have today, but indifference really just can't be one of them, not if our eyes are open to who this person is. The the reaction should be either one of being confounded and exasperated or just drawn to him out of sheer love and admiration for how radically different he lived. What does that have to do with mission, beholding Jesus' beauty and glory? Well, it's the true fuel for authentic, real, powerful mission. Why? Because we will naturally evangelize to others what we ourselves find to be most deeply satisfying. Or as one person once said, what we love, we laud, we praise, we worship. So true mission is always going to start and continue authentically by being fueled by the beauty of Jesus on display through scripture and through God's spirit-filled people as we see it in God's people. But in particular in this series, we're going to see it through scripture as we look at several of the different gospel accounts of how Jesus went about mission. So that's the first way we become better missionaries. We grow in love for Jesus. We behold him and we become more like him as a result of that. And the second is that we follow the example of Jesus. We're called to imitate Jesus in the way that Jesus does things. And Jesus gives us the perfect example in Scripture of what it looks like for us to be on mission. The accounts that we have in the Bible are not by accident. God made sure of that. They show us everything that we need to see and understand to know what it looks like for us to go about being on mission. So there's a sense in which very practically we can learn from Jesus' example and extrapolate really powerful principles for us to live in light of as we seek to be on mission in this world. So here's how we're going to do that. This is week one of nine weeks. The other eight weeks, we're going to be looking at eight different accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' interaction with people who need him, whom he's sharing the Gospel with who don't yet know him. And today, what we're going to do to set up the rest of the series is present the framework for that, what we're going to look for, in all of those eight accounts. And that would be by looking at what it means that Jesus was uh, uh, incarnational, what the incarnation is, where God became man, took on flesh, entered time and space in a particular culture and made sense to the people there through the way that he articulated what they needed in the gospel. That's what it means to be incarnational. That's what the incarnation was, God taking on human form and flesh. And the best place to go to see that, as Pastor Matt um, referred to earlier, is John chapter 1. This is John's beautiful theological treatise 
uh, John the Apostle, um, of what it means for God to have taken on human flesh in Jesus Christ. So turn there, if you would, in your own Bibles. Uh, John chapter 1, that's on page 1053 of the blue ESV Bibles in, your, uh, in the pew. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that's service right there. We're called to follow Jesus' example, and also Paul says many times, you know, uh, follow me as I follow Christ, imitate those, you know, we talked about in Hebrews, whose example is worthy, so there was a worthy example of service right there for you. So we're going to be reading John chapter 1, and I, on the screen behind me, it's just going to be 1 through 5, and then skipping to 9 through 14, and I'm like, why am I leaving out those middle verses? They talk about John the Baptist, and contrasting him to Jesus, making sure we understand John was just a forerunner and was not the Christ. We'll just read those two. So once there's a gap on the screen behind me, you'll know why. So if you are able, would you please join me by standing for the reading of God's word as we read John chapter one, verses one through 14 together. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Father, would you help our eyes, our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be opened to the incarnation of Jesus in all his glory, or at least increase the measure with which we see him clearly today and how he lived a missional life, of which many in this room are beneficiaries. And I pray everyone in this room would become a beneficiary of the mission and the gospel that Jesus was sent for. Would you prepare our hearts to grow in love with Christ as we behold him by the power of your spirit? And would you grow us in our skill and in our wisdom and in our understanding of what it means to be now Christ's hands and feet and mouthpiece in a world that so desperately needs this good news. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and for our joy. Amen. You may have a seat. I closed that prematurely. I want to read to you John 1.14 again, and I should have it memorized by now. But this, 
Verse 14 really is the verse that distills down what it means, the incarnation means, what it means that God became flesh. And again, it says, and the word, who by now hopefully we understand, is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. All right. We're going to talk about in a moment the method of mission that Jesus went about from that verse. But we'd be remiss not to talk about the motivation for his mission that is just implicit in the incarnation that God chose to leave his perfect heavenly dwelling and become a man. Holy God moved toward his broken creation. What was the motivation for the incarnation? Jesus came because of his love for the Father. Jesus came because of his love for people, including you and I here this morning. He left the perfection of heaven. He came to us. He suffered as a man for us, not because he had to, but because he loved So before we do anything to and for the people around us, let us grow in love for Jesus so that our motivation for mission can be the same as his. But then when we consider the incarnation, we also learn a lot about his method. And this is really going to become the framework through which we evaluate Jesus on mission throughout the rest of the gospel. And we see three things. He was present with people. He was full of truth. And he was full of grace. First, let's talk a little bit about what it meant for him to be present. Literally, that word there is to dwell or to take up residence in, such as in a tent. In in the ESV, it was he dwelt with us. That was the, the term used there. We're calling it present or presence throughout this series. But literally, it's to to dwell or take up residence in a home or a tent. And it brings to mind the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was that set up, tear down place of worship for the people of God to enter while Israel was wandering through the wilderness. And God's presence was there in that tabernacle in the center of it all in the Holy of Holies in a spiritual form in that one place. Except with Jesus, qualitatively, his presence was different than that because it wasn't only spiritual in one locale where one person, the high priest, could enter it one day a year. But instead, he came as a person who literally walked among and lived among us. And we can't overstate the importance of presence to effective mission, right? Very practically speaking, if you're not actually with other people, it's going to be really hard for them to learn about the gospel in word or to see it lived out, embodied through you, his people, right? So practically, you just need to be with other people. But it's more than that, too, because there's just a power and presence. Those of you who have grieved deeply before know the power of people just being present with you. Maybe they didn't even speak any words, but they were there with you, and it was powerful. You knew they loved you because of it. Those of you who've celebrated things, you look back at milestones in your life, important events that you were um, celebrating And you remember the people who were there. You may not remember a thing that they said, but you remember them being there. And their presence spoke love to you. The first thing we see in the incarnation and in Jesus' approach to mission is he, he was present. He came to dwell with us at great cost to himself. 
So what characterized that presence? There can be bad presence. So what makes for good presence? And it's the next two things that tell us what characterized Jesus' presence, that he was full of truth and he was full of grace. See, Jesus didn't just speak the truth like we do. He actually was and is the truth. And what is truth anyway, right? It's a word that especially as Christians we can throw around and we probably know what it means, but how often do we really think about what that means? And, and, and it's this, it's, it's reality. It's the way things actually are, or at least we're meant to be. And who gets to define that? Well, honestly, that's for each of you to decide by faith. But as Christians, we believe that all truth is sourced in Jesus, who is the author of reality. Jesus claims this of himself, not in an egotistical way, but because it's just reality and what it is. In John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And of the Father, Jesus says in John 17, 17, speaking about his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus cared about the truth, both because it was intrinsic to who he actually is, right? So he could not deny himself. To deny him is to deny truth. But also because when we live in accordance with truth, it's for our good and our flourishing, and he knows that as well. He says in John eight thirty one to 32 to his disciples, if you abide in my word, if you remain in, if you love my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. That's a good thing, right? Truth will set you free. Which means if we deny or we twist the truth, then we are in fact living in slavery to sin. And from the clarity of what Scripture teaches us, that only ever leads to death. So truth's important to Jesus because it's who he is intrinsically, but also because he knows it's for our good. Now, the third principle that marked Jesus' mission and characterized what it meant for him to be present was grace. Grace is not opposed to truth. These things are not at odds to each other. That said, grace is God's surprising patience and compassion towards people who are not yet grasping or accepting the truth. It's God's favor towards those who are unworthy. It's his benevolence towards the undeserving. It's God's willingness to forgive despite the fact that we don't deserve forgiveness. Grace is something freely given without expecting anything in return. And grace comes at a cost, but to the one who's extending it, not the one who's receiving it. So 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The cost to Jesus extending grace to his people and to creation came at his own expense, not ours. Now there's grace that can be received in a couple different forms, right? There's a a grace that can be received in a saving way and a grace that is just generally graciously extended to God's creation. So in the saving sense, we... We think of passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where the Apostle Paul says, For by grace, God's grace, undeserved favor, you've been saved through your faith. Which, by the way, is where truth comes in. You're trusting in him that he is the source of truth. So, but it's still by grace. 
that you are saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one may boast. So that's the grace that's effective to save a person from their sins. But there's also a grace that precedes salvation, which is more of what we're going to see in this series as we look at Jesus interacting with the lost. It's a grace that woos a person to realize the kind of God who rules this universe. A God of holiness and power, yes, but also a God who unfathomably moves towards the very ones who've rejected him in love. Because as Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness that actually is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, presence, truth, and grace, it's one thing for us to talk about these things with words, to try to describe them with words. It's really hard to capture, to do justice to these things. Um, And oftentimes, we better understand what it means to experience genuine, helpful, life-changing presence or truth or grace through seeing them in action. That's what this series is all about. So hopefully, presence, truth, and grace becomes clearer as we see them lived out as much as hear them in words by looking at Jesus through these eight different passages. Let me also talk about what an imbalance of presence, truth, and truth and grace might result in, look like in our lives. And this is where it can be a helpful diagnostic for us going into this series so that maybe we can actually head in with a sobering and self-aware sense for like, this is probably the area I'm most reluctant to or have the hardest time with or I'm weakest in. Um, And when I say an imbalance of these things, I I don't mean 33.3%, 33.3%. We got to be in I mean, 100% of all is what Jesus embodied, right? Of presence, truth, and grace. So if we value any less than 100%, any one of these three things, then it could result in the following. If we are only people who are present and speaking truth without any grace, then it very likely is going to be combative at best, perhaps even spiritually abusive at worst. I know this is a stereotype, but many of us have also probably seen it. I know I did when I was on my college campus 20 plus years ago, where I came across a person who was holding a a life-size cross in one arm and a Bible in the other hand, and just preaching hellfire and brimstone to all the sinners who passed by. I didn't really hear any grace in that message. Now, listen, God works in mysterious ways. I'm not saying he can't work in that way. And I don't know the motives of that preacher's heart. But grace was lacking there. And oftentimes that kind of presentation, anemic presentation of the incarnation of who Jesus was can do more damage than it can good if grace is altogether absent. Or you could have presence and grace, but no truth. And at the end of the day, you're probably a really nice guy or gal who really doesn't have anything to offer. And I think as I put it up on the screen, like, It's pointless. And that may seem harsh, but if we think of the eternal ramifications in people's lives who don't know Jesus, if we're only ever just nice and kind to them, but we never point them to the source of their need for salvation, then at the end of the day, what is that kind, gracious presence to them if they're going to spend eternity in hell because they never met Jesus? Or we could have truth and grace, but no presence. And you may have a really great church or a group of Christians who love each other, but aren't on mission. 
They're in a bunker together until Jesus returns, hiding their light under a bushel for nobody but each other to see. Typically, if this is characteristic of Christians, it's because they want heaven to already be here before it's actually arrived, leaving the lost in need of Christ without the presence of Christ through his people. And by the way, I say a really great church, a bit tongue-in-cheek, because eventually that's going to be a really unhealthy church. Because at the heart of Christians who would only ever want to express truth and grace to one another, but withhold it from the world that's still in need of it, is either fear or selfishness that drives that impulse to kind of cloister away and just wait for Jesus to return. Now, Jesus valued all of these things equally But I will say, situations that he was in determined which of these you'll see emphasized, for sure. We'll see accounts in which Jesus' grace seems to be more prominently on display than his truth, or vice versa. And there are plenty of accounts in which Jesus is actually withdrawing from people for a time, rather than being present with them. But we trust because it's Jesus, who had no sin in him, that it was because of wisdom that these different things looked emphasized differently in different seasons and times and situations. So let me just ask you, as I've been asking myself this week, do you know where you tend to err? Is it toward being a truth teller, but maybe at the expense of grace? Or being full of grace, but a reluctant truth teller? Or do you find yourself tempted to withdraw from the mess of sinners and irritating people content to enjoy your personal relationship with Jesus, but without much thought for others. Now, nobody but Jesus was perfectly full of presence, truth, and grace all the time. So we actually do well and are being honest with ourselves to concede there are probably areas of weakness or fear or pride or selfishness that result in us erring in a certain direction. And also, Jesus is full of truth and grace. And so he's not condemning us where we fall short, but he is calling us to consider where our expressions of him may be falling short. And we may, not, we may be um, offering a misleading picture to the world of who he is. On a personal note, as I thought about this, I found myself erring to unhealthy degrees at different times in my life in all of these ways. Being a truth teller, because of self-righteousness in my life at the expense of grace, sometimes being too gracious where telling the truth would actually have been the most loving thing to do, and other times withdrawing my presence selfishly because it's just easier to embrace my personal relationship with Jesus than it is to risk the rejection of the world and of people who might not like what I believe. And the funny thing is, too, I've had people in my life who tell me they think I'm too gracious And that I need to speak more boldly about certain things. I've had people tell me they think that I make too big of a deal about certain matters of truth and I should extend more grace and patience in those areas. And honestly, I say this to say it's one reason I love this church. There's enough diversity here that I am challenged by the different bents and biases and giftings and experiences and perspectives of many who are in this room. Not all of this is bad, in other words, is what I'm trying to say. We need to be aware of the shadow side of our strengths, but we also need to recognize we probably have something to learn from the strengths of those around us who seem to more heavily value presence or truth or grace. And if we don't concede that, 
that there may even be something healthy about that as we're all trying to move toward and be conformed more to Jesus's image from different angles, then that's what can lead to factions and divisions within churches. So that's actually another goal for this series is to help continue to grow us as a church that can be unified. Our prayer is that by us looking at Jesus through this series, we may all gain a deeper appreciation for what it means to be on mission in ways that may not be natural for you, your natural bias or bent. And one of the benefits of that, if you just see the beauty and what it means for Jesus to be present or, or gracious or truthful, is a deeper appreciation for your brothers and sisters who embody those things so well, even if it seems to be at the expense of something else. So we're going to look at Jesus in this series, and we're going to see some marvelous, incredible examples of what it means for him to be sometimes very nuanced, but once you see it, it's like, oh, that's so powerful for him to be present and gracious and truthful. Some radical expressions that resulted from those around him, either in worshiping him or scorn, pronouncements of judgment or praise. Very radical reactions to Jesus's presence, truth, and grace. And I think as we do this, I'm really excited for this series because I know all of the scripture is God's word. Jesus is behind it all and is conveying his character through it all. But there's just something about looking at him in the Gospels and how he interacted with people as a man like you and I that just helps me to love him more. And so I'm looking forward to that for for all of us in this series. All right, here's where I want to wrap up today. I just want to highlight for you some common patterns that you're going to see repeated throughout these accounts and to be on the lookout for. They happen frequently enough so that we know they're not by accident. They're worth learning from. And the first one is hospitality, is a very common theme we'll see throughout these stories. Many of the stories that we'll look at include food and drink and Jesus spending time over a meal with others, whether friend or foe, whether religious or irreligious. But it happens enough so we know it's not by accident. It seems Jesus was modeling uh, for us the importance of sharing a meal in order to build relationship or find common ground with those with whom we differ. I, a couple of year, year or two ago, I was listening to a Christian neuroscientist talk about um, the impact of trauma on the brain and how some of those neural pathways that have been damaged by trauma can actually be healed and restored through various things. One of them that he talked about, the science has shown, was eating food over an extended period of time of 30 minutes or more. Now you may say, well, that's weird. What's the connection from that? Don't knock my laptop off here to, to this point. Well, he went on to say, well, when is it that you eat food fast? Like we're really, I'm really good at that as being a product of a culture, I think, that has shaped me to just try to check off my list of to-dos and move on to the next thing, and I don't have time to sit down and, and, and take time for a meal. When do you tend to spend 30? It's not when you're eating by yourself. It's when you're eating with other people, and you're having conversations with them, and you're taking a bite, and then a minute or two goes by while you're talking, and you take another bite, and it's almost like God has designed for there to be something so powerful about community over a meal that it can be healing to the broken parts of you. So Jesus did this again and again. He was involved in hospitality that he initiated or welcomed and received the hospitality of others and then ministered in that context. That's powerful. 
There's also the power of questions that we see on display. Jesus was a master. He was the master, let's just say it, of asking questions in all of history, okay? And according to one resource, Jesus asks questions 284 times over the course of the four Gospels. That's a lot. So you, knew, you know that's not by accident. And sometimes he did this out of wisdom so as not to fall into the trap of his enemies. More often, those questions were asked in order to create genuine space for people to contemplate what their deepest need was and their deepest hurdles to following after him. It was actually an act of kindness and grace to approach them in that way and truth. You see, Jesus didn't often force the issue I think sometimes I feel like compelled that I, I, have to, I have to get to the bottom of this. I have to just say what's true. He didn't feel that angst oftentimes. Often he knew a good question is what was most needed. And that sometimes people just needed to sit with those questions and let it sink into their heart. And that's what would do the most good. Next, we see Jesus often seems to play the long game. Similar, I, th- I guess, to even his strategy of asking questions at times. Rarely in the accounts we'll look at, or even in other ones that aren't going to be in this series, do you see a definitive moment of salvation where somebody voices clear repentance of sin and confession of faith. That isn't to say that they don't happen in the Gospels or that they're not important to the work of evangelism. There does need to be a decision point for people in following after Christ. But often we see Jesus just let people walk away and not run after them and pull them back and say, but you're not understanding yet. He lets them walk away, often after asking a question, considering what he had just said or asked rather than forcing a moment of faith. This is because he's playing the long game with people a lot of the time, allowing conversion, which is repentance from sin and confession of faith, to take place through words and actions over the course of time. We also see Jesus' use of prophecy frequently in these accounts. Often, we'll see Jesus revealing his divine nature through the use of prophecy, which is knowing the inner thoughts and sin patterns of others and then bringing those to the forefront in conversations for strategic ministry purposes. And in fact, we'll see an example of that next week. The first account we're going to look at is Jesus' calling of Nathanael, who is one of his disciples. And it comes after a prophetic moment where he sees something about Nathanael that he couldn't have known apart from God. One of the questions that this begs us to consider as Christians is, was that just for Jesus? Or does the spirit that Jesus sent to be in us want to work through us in that way as well? Now, we need to be wise here, and we talked about this some back in our, series, our mini-series last year um, on the Holy Spirit. But I've known personally the power of God using a person prophetically to speak into my life something that only he could have known to awaken me to what he is trying to say and to do. It can be a powerful way for God to get our attention, and especially of the attention of those who aren't yet believers, perhaps because of intellectual reasons, but you can't really dismiss something that is supernatural, like a prophetic word, an insight to what somebody is going through um, or is going on in their life that God would use to grab their hearts and their attention to hear the gospel. So we'll see that as a recurring theme and should ask the question, is that just for Jesus? Or does the New Testament have something to say about how that can actually be a tool of God through his people today? And then we see story as a common theme. Jesus will consistently use 
the power of story, oftentimes through parables, to convey truths and to invite contemplation and bring conviction that way through a story. Sometimes a story is actually a more powerful way of a light bulb going on for people than just presenting empirical data. I think we all know that. Who of us in here has not, have not been powerfully moved by stories? And so many, if not all, of the examples we'll be looking at in this series are stories. The final theme that we'll mention for today is disruption and distraction. This one is particularly near and dear to my heart because um, three years ago when we were in our uh, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew series, I came across, um, when we got to chapter 15, this verse, I'll read it to you. Uh, It's chapter 15, verses 29 to 30 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. And it just struck me. That seems to happen a lot in Jesus' life and ministry, where Jesus ministered to people reactively rather than having proactively sought them out. And so, I actually, this is a really cool thing. I don't normally do this, but I just felt compelled to go through the, the Gospel of Matthew, count up all the interactions of any kind that were there, and then just see how many of them were Jesus proactively seeking out a ministry opportunity, planning something versus reacting to a question or a ministry need or even a challenge that came his way. And here's what, I, here's what I found. 33 times, there was 93 total instances of an interaction initiated. 33 of them Jesus initiated. The other 60 were initiated by others. One third of the time, Jesus is seen initiating planned ministry of some kind. Nearly two thirds of the time of his ministry, we see in the whole gospel of Matthew, he's just responding to others who are coming to him. One other thing that I noted is that all the while that this ministry of distraction and interruption was happening, he had his mind on the big picture. He had an express sense of big picture purpose in his life. He would say repeatedly, I have come to preach the kingdom of God or to heal people in order to reveal the kingdom of God. And he always had Jerusalem in his sights number of times throughout Matthew's gospel, at least three. He's instructing his disciples about how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the, at the hand of the religious leaders and, and be crucified and buried and rise again. He had his mind on the final goal. He knew what he had come to do, but very often on his way to that ultimate goal, you see the language of as he went or while they were going, and then someone would interrupt his plans in some way and he would minister to them. All of this to say, Jesus had a big picture understanding of his purpose in life, his ultimate goal. But the majority of his ministry was actually in response to what I'll call divine interruptions. The title of that sermon, by the way, was Jesus's ministry in the margins. Because as I think about it, margins are the space that we try to create where there isn't anything planned. And yet, the majority of Jesus' ministry was unplanned. The majority of Jesus' ministry was in the margins. And I don't think that example is by accident. In fact, in fact, I think one of the most freeing things for me, that goodness gracious, I'm still working on, 
but for any Christian can be to realize that what we may see on a daily basis is just interruptions in our life, whether it's circumstances or people, are more likely divine appointments that God is wanting to work through. The temptation is to think, well, if I say yes to this, or if I'm accessible to this person, or if I take this phone call, et cetera, et cetera, I won't have time for X or Y or Z. But I think that's why Jesus said things like in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things I will add unto you. So be on the lookout for that theme of disruption or distraction, or divine interruption, as I like to call it, throughout our time in this series. So that's our introduction. I hope that that's helpful to kind of lay a groundwork for where we're going. It's really that, that paradigm of what it means to be on mission that Jesus showed us, to be present, full of truth, and full of grace that we'll be looking at on repeat throughout this series. But as we continue now in our time of communion and worship, let's consider how those things are actually true for us right now in this moment, even as we enter into communion Because if you are a Christian in here today, you know the intimate presence of Jesus like any other time in history. Jesus said to his disciples, it's actually better that I go and send my spirit to be with you than that I remain. And if you are a Christian here this morning, you have his presence with you and dwelling in you in the most intimate sense possible. You may not feel like it at all times, but Jesus is offering you his intimate presence and is wanting for us all to grow in that awareness of that reality, that truth. But in communion, we also have truth and grace powerfully on display. We have the truth that there is a right way to live. There is such a thing as holiness, which is inherent in who God is. And that when we fall short of that, when we turn our backs on God and we reject him, there are consequences to that. There is justice that must be paid. And yet in communion, we also see grace on full display. Because while that punishment and that justice should have fallen upon you and me, God gave Jesus to absorb those consequences in our place, giving us undeserved life and undeserved righteous standing. So as we celebrate communion Jesus is present with you. For those who come forward, for disciples of Jesus here today, he's present with you. And once again, he's showing you, I am full of truth and grace. So let's remember that as we celebrate communion. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, I'm so excited if I can start a prayer that way and just say there's so much more for us to see and behold about your son Jesus than we've seen. We know that that process won't come till completion until we see him face to face on the last day. But we long to come much, to draw much nearer to you even now. And I pray that among all the other ways you're doing that in our lives, you would use our time in your word as we look at your son to just enliven our hearts with love for him in a deeper way than ever before. And would you make us missionaries after his kind who learn what it is to be present and full of truth and full of grace and find joy in that. We can only do these things by your help. So we pray for your help in this endeavor. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.